Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. This is Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thank you so much for listening. And a special thanks to those of you who are listening from over 75 countries outside the U.S. I'd love to learn about what is happening with wine in all of your countries. It's really humbling and inspiring to know that so many people are listening from around the planet, from some places that I wouldn't even expect. Those of you in the U.S. who have listened to more than one or two episodes of this podcast probably know that if you want to buy glass bottles, you have to make some ecological compromises. Even if you buy the lightest weight glass bottles like I do for Centralis, glass has a huge carbon footprint from the manufacturing, and only the dark green bottles get recycled. That's why I'm excited to introduce you to Oom. Oom collects used bottles and has solved the problem of removing labels and properly cleaning them so that they can be safely reused. That means bottles of any shape and color can be sourced from Oom at a fraction of the carbon footprint of new glass, and not only do you not add to the waste stream, you actively reduce it, all for the cost that you would normally pay for new glass. This is something great to share with your customers when you source from Oom, and it's also great for the earth. So check out Oom at oom.com. Earth and use referral code OWP for Organic Wine Podcast. That's O-O-M dot Earth and use referral code OWP. My guest for this episode is Stephen J. Castles, author of the book Grapes of the Hudson Valley and grower of 106 varieties of hybrid and heritage wine grapes in the Hudson Valley. If I were to boil this entire episode down to one message, it would be this. Treat hybrids like real grapes. We talk about the benefits and characteristics of these hybrid and heritage grapes. We talk about the added benefits of growing grapes on their own roots rather than rootstock. We talk about why hybrids were banned in France. We talk about the benefits of the greater productivity of these grapes, the benefits of the disease resistance of these grapes. We talk about making wine from hybrids and how they can immensely expand your palate of flavors to work with. Stephen is a wealth of information. Stephen has a wealth of information to share, and this interview is a nonstop fire hose of wine knowledge. Enjoy. Stephen, welcome. Thanks for doing this. Really excited well, to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, it's my pleasure. You have a very fun <laughs> uh, sort of hobby. It's more than a hobby, I guess, but you're, you are not, uh, as a profession specifically, I mean, part-time your profession is wine and grapes, but... You're also an attorney uh, full-time, and you're an author, which seems like it must, you must have three full-time jobs. And well, I'm calling them hobbies, but it sounds yeah. like, it sounds mm-hmm. like you just never stop. Well, actually, luckily I retired from the state of New York last year in August. So oh. I've, been, I've been retired, quote unquote, since uh, August of 2021. So I've, and so I'm, this is like... Oh month 14 into it so but but i was doing a lot of this stuff with grapes and writing just as a, as a segue into another career so that's what i've been trying to do so yeah got it got it and you are the author of grapes of the hudson valley um which is my little tease for you know some of the subject matter here because you have a little 12 acre farm called cedar cliff where you might be you know probably the guy in america at least east america (laughs) who is preserving you know 110 at least uh maybe it's more than that um hybrid french hybrid and and sort of regional heritage grapes is that good am i getting those facts right i think it'd be safe to say that um, i grow about 107 different kinds of varieties okay really um 
what I got most of them from is that the federal government has something called germplasm. It's basically uh, the doomsday place for for for, for grapes. Right. It, it's like you know, which is like which is a book which recorded all property in England. So that's not like doomsday like right. of a prepper or anything like that. But but the doomsday book was was pretty much was like I think it was like in the 1400s they wrote down. It was like the first time they did a property taxes. Before we can tax people, we've got to find out who's out there so we can find out who to tax. And that's what the doomsday book was. You just kind of like <laughs> go from place to place. So, anyway, so but uh, the federal government, both at UC Davis and at Geneva, what they have is they have this vineyard that has like two vines of hundreds of different grape varieties. So many of these, what I did was, uh, and, the, and they have, they provide a service where you can get cuttings of those. So many of the cuttings that are at my place, I got from the germplasm uh, facility, which is in Geneva, New York. So Gotcha. Yeah, I was going to say Geneva, New York, when we're talking here for any yes. international listeners. Yeah, yeah. but a lot <laughs> of these, many of these have not been have not been grown for quite a while or observed really. So, so I guess I have them, and what I've been doing is actually I've been making cuttings of my own and having them go to other people to kind of spread the wealth, as they say. So, because I think at the germplasm place they have enough for like maybe twenty cuttings a year, so they don't have a lot. While I'm able to supply a lot more, the other thing I did is that particularly with the Hudson Valley hybrids. And with the ones that were developed in New England, is there's a, a book called The Grapes of New York, which covers them all also. When I got the grapes from Geneva, I planted them, observed them, and then looked at written material to make sure that, in fact, they did not make a mistake and have the wrong variety either sent to me or they they thought they were supplying a grape called Jefferson, but in fact, it wasn't. So I kind of corroborated by looking at a lot of other articles to make sure that, in fact, what I thought was a Jefferson or what I thought was a Croton was, in fact, that. So so I've done that. And since then, I've been pretty much just like evaluating to see how they do. And with all the change of climate, that's it's been a it's been a very educational experience. And so, so you your amplography skills must be pretty, pretty decent at this point. I spent a lot of time doing this, yes, and I also <laughs> have, and I have friends like Lucy Morton uh, Garrett, who's um, also does a lot of that stuff. So I, we talk right. pretty often. So there, there are other there are others like me out there. So we, we chat all the time. So <laughs> yeah, how long have you been doing this? Um, I've been growing grapes. There was a winery called Ben Mar, which is still around. A winery called Ben Mar Vineyards, which is in Marlboro, New York, which is the Mid Hudson Valley, and I lived about to maybe a mile and a half away. So at the age of 13, I started working in the vineyard. And then from there, I became wow. a cellar rat and did it, did it that way. So I this is my 48th vintage year of making wine. Wow. And why did you not do this as a full-time profession? Why did you go into law? Was that a passion that I mean, did you just realize you would be broke your whole life if you went? Yeah, I didn't want to be broke all my entire life. So I, so I, yes, yeah, so I, you know, went to law school. And, then, and what I do is I work, I worked for the state of New York, and I worked for a law firm which specialized in municipal law for for a while. And I did a lot of like bond work for like sewer districts and things like that. But I always kind of like the public service, so I worked first for the New York State Assembly, and most of my career was with the New York State Senate for thirty three years, and then the last three years, I work for the, the New York State Department of Health. Now, as you mentioned, Geneva, they are a pretty big repository of, of you know, maintaining a, a library, so to speak, a living library of grapes. Um, what's different with what you're doing? Or how are you, you know, as a private grower, different or adding to that or, you know, or duplicating it or what? I think what I'm doing is I'm, I'm actually I'm learning more about them. What, what they have done is they have a place. So if I want a, a variety called Croton or a variety called Humilian, 
I can get cuttings from them, but they don't like evaluate them every year. I mean, I don't believe that they pick those grapes and then every year find out like when is when is the bud break for that grape variety? When does it flower? Uh, when does it start adding sugar? When do you pick them? It. What's the highest bricks they'll get? So I've what I do, and actually I'm working with the University of Massachusetts and Rutgers right now, writing an article about how climate change has affected many of these different varieties. So I have records really since about 2012 every year as far as like when do they bloom when do they flower when do they start adding sugar and i don't like to say okay we picked them in september and they had 20 bricks what i'll do is like i'll do like every five days starting on labor day weekend like uh has got like four percent sugar while baco's got like say 18 percent sugar so what i do is i do a continuum of like from uh, Labor Day all the way through to where they're picked. And so I have an idea of like when they're adding sugars and about how many sugars they're adding. So so what I do is I'm mm. evaluating the grape varieties while the repository is just, it's a place where you can get cuttings. Right. So their their goal is to keep the plants alive and, and prop- clonally propagate them, whereas you actually want to find out what their qualities what are. Yeah. yeah, what they do. Yeah, both in the field, but ah. also in the cellar, because I make wine out of many of them. So some are right. really good in the field, but they don't make, they made okay wine, but not great wine. So I'm trying to like find that sweet spot of like varieties that you can grow in a sustainable manner where they're fungus disease resistant, they're cold hardy, but they also make quality wines. Is that the criteria for what you grow? Is it wine uh, and wine, you know, Good for mostly wine. Mostly wine. Mostly wine. I have a few table grapes, so but it's mostly wine. <clears throat> okay. Um, what do you? I mean, I let's look at the big picture. I guess first of all, mm-hmm. which is why do this? Like, what is the value to to yourself, but also to to anybody else for for you doing this? Well, it is just for fun. <laughs> so, <laughs> you're I'm just a, a, a grape geek. I get it. Totally. Yeah, that's it. right. That's what he does. For This is what he does. Yeah, pretty sad life I have. So, but, <laughs> so like, you do what? You know, so, so like, what do you do? I, I you know, I, I create Fabergé eggs, like a lot of detail. But it's like a, once you get it, like, you got this little egg, you know? So, but they're very beautiful. It's just like, it's, it's I think it's something more along those lines. So, but I think what would happen is like, I first worked when I worked at Ben Marl and then the Hudson Chatham Winery. I specialized pretty much on uh, French American hybrids, so like Baco and Chalois and Chambersen. But then when I started, I wanted to write first a pamphlet and then it got bigger because I wanted to do French American hybrids. And then I looked and found out uh, there's a book called Grapes of New York, which was published in 1908. And what it does is it covers all Native American hybrids that were created or that were in existence up to uh, 1908. But what they did was they, they uh, presented the grape varieties in alphabetical order. And what I did was as I was reading the book, I was noticing more often than not that many of these grapes were actually either developed in the Boston area or in the Newburgh area in the Hudson Valley. So what I did was like, when I wrote the book, Grapes of the Hudson Valley, I organized it by the hybridizer or the region in which they came from. So- So the grapes in New York, what they'll do is like, for instance, like Ricketts developed many, many varieties. So he developed mm-hmm. like Empire State and Bacchus and Jefferson. And and so he, so basically, if you do it in alpha order, you have, you know, they're spread out throughout. What I did was I had a chapter or a, a subsection on James Ricketts, who lived in Newburgh, who was a, who was pretty much a, a, his main job. He was a bookbinder who worked for West Point, and then he developed grape varieties. So basically, it has a biography of James Ricketts. Where did he live? 
what was his breeding goals, and what was the resultant fruit that he did. So it was kind of more my interest initially in mm. French-American hybrids. I did the same thing. So like Baco had a few varieties. Uh, Sable, uh, Sabile had quite a few. So like Chancellor and Dushanak and Shelwa. So I was organizing them that way. And then as I started doing that, I found that there was many other ones that were developed in the uh, United States. So then I started adding chapters on Hudson Valley hybridizers, New England hybridizers, and then I added chapters uh, for ones that are being done now. So by Cornell University, University of Minnesota. So I had it that way. So I kept adding chapters as I moved along. So and then I kept adding more on. But I pretty much started planting the Hudson Valley uh, varieties really when I was learning about them from the book. So I wanted because I didn't want to write a book about things and write down what other people said about them in like the year 1900, I wanted to grow them myself and evaluate them and say, yes, they, they were good at certain things. So, and I found them actually, uh, Cornell, I think was a little cool on hybrids that were not developed by themselves. So they were like only amateur growers could grow them. They don't grow that well. You know, you can plant if you want, but I wouldn't plant them. But I was noticing that they were in their breeding work. They were using all these grapes to breed their own varieties. So I wanted to plant them directly and see how they, worked and it turns out they're really good in the field and they really make lovely wines so like grapes like from ricketts uh, jefferson empire state by the underhill family which is in croton point like um croton sansqua um Kaywood, who lived in marlborough will actually own the property that ben Morrow was sitting on grapes like duchess ulster so i did it that way but i wanted to grow them first so i could evaluate them and then say and then look at the literature most of which was before 1920, because that's when they were being used and looked at and evaluated, but to include all that stuff, but also to say, okay, and I grow them too. And I find these certain kind of attributes to them as far as how they grow, how they're fungal disease resistant, and then what kind of wines they Okay. As, as an attorney, I want to ask you a really practical question. How many years can you write off the expenses of a vineyard as a book research expense? Well, I think at, at some point, um, you know, <laughs> that's well, more of a joke, but maybe I mean, I mean, I think the IRS after like seven or eight years, if you're like having these massive losses and there's no, I think the standards like you pretty much have no hope of ever gaining income from this. And then also you have to have income to, I used to be a tax attorney. So that's actually, yeah. so oh, perfect. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I did. So, um, so, what it, so that was one of the areas that I did that in healthcare financing. So really as a practical matter, you want to make sure that like you, you, you have expenses, but if you don't have income off of it or another income somewhere else to offset it, you have all these losses you can't book in your taxes. So right. like, you know, so, but pretty much I try to like make sure it like breaks even every year. That's what I try and do. So, Got it. But but literally, like you could potentially plant a vineyard as research for a book. And oh and yeah. That would, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Just throw yep. just throwing that out there for any <laughs> you know, uh anybody else who's interested um in doing, you know, <laughs> similar mm-hmm. research. Mm-hmm. Which like myself, for example. Um Yeah. So and I, just, have you, just to decide when it comes to the when it comes to uh to, at least in tax consequences of writing a book though, is like the accounting is very done different, very differently because basically you have all your upfront costs, your printing costs, your marketing costs. So a lot of times you do a, you estimate uh, on an accrual basis, what is the cost of doing each book? So when you actually finally print the book, you'll say, okay, with all the expenses and back expenses, it costs me $20 to do this thing. And I'm selling it for like 25, your gain will be $5 on that book. So you do it that way. Got it. Interesting. <laughs> 
I love it. <laughs> this is good. No, I, not. Uh, have you ever been to Ricketts Glen? No. The uh, state park. Um, I think it is in upstate Pennsylvania, but it's close. It's getting close to New York. Um, mm-hmm. Beautiful. Anyway, it just made me think of that when you brought up Ricketts. It's, uh-huh. uh, it's and actually named. James Ricketts was like from. He was from New Jersey, so he was like near like Saddle River and like and the, the okay. Can't think of the, uh, the anyway, but he was like Northern Jersey. So and then he moved to Newburgh like around the, uh, 1860 or so. Gotcha. So I'm saying yeah, they might it's... be related because that's still the same kind of area. Like, yeah, I'm pretty area. sure it was. Him. I'm pretty sure it's that Ricketts. But anyway, mm-hmm. beautiful, beautiful state park. If you ever mm-hmm. get a chance, definitely worth checking out. Um, well, lovely. Now I know that there's more value. You know, I, I mean, there's some some sort of cultural value to these as well. Would you describe them as you know, sort of in the, in a similar way, like just a as as things are changing in the world, um, there's a value to having these sort of obscure, rare things because you never know what might start doing well again with with a, a changing climate. Is there is that a fair assumption? That's one of the reasons why I'm doing all this work, and that's why what I do have right now is I partner with a winery called Malay Estate Vineyards. And if you want, also if you have any interest, um, if you want to like. Uh, all these grapes that we're talking about, I have a website and it's a, it's a simple name. It's basically Hudson Valley heritage wines.com. So it's Hudson Valley heritage wines.com. And it has pictures of all these grape varieties that I grow and descriptions of them. And what I've done is I've, uh, I've worked with uh, the Malaya estate vineyards. And what we do is I make wines out of them and they sell them. So you can get a heritage Bacchus and you can get a Bacca Noir and a Shell So so because I don't want to just like, grow these things and make five gallons and say, oh, I really like this. I'm trying to set it up in such a way so that I can encourage growers to grow these kind of grape varieties, but also work with a commercial winery so that we can sell those wines. And the whole idea is like, if you're a wine writer or like wine, you'll say, I like Shawa, I like Baco Noir, I like Jefferson, that those wineries will start looking to try and buy those grapes. And then there's the chicken and egg thing is that First, you have to have growers who are growing them, and growers are not going to go a grape that they don't think there's any demand from a wine to do that. So I'm trying to jumpstart the idea of like encouraging and talking to growers to plant these grapes and to have these wineries make wines out of them. Yeah, I'm I'm actually trying to approach it from the other end where we just get rid of varietally varietally known wines so that mm-hmm. you can just use whatever varieties do well where you grow you know like mm-hmm. this is you know start started at that and i like i mean i think we need to work from both ends where you know mm-hmm. get people excited about new things i think there is excitement out there in the market now but i'm also like if we didn't if we just stuck with you know if we'd adopted the, the sort of wise thing of having you know appalachian wines i think that that we abandoned when we brought you know this european wine culture over uh you know that that might have been the best part of it was like having this ability to you know name things by you know having hudson valley a hudson valley red or hudson valley white or something like that rather than rather than a specific you know grape name um where and you know when that that name is now out of vogue or no longer does well, you're kind of screwed because you built your reputation on that wine. With on that this thing. And name. what I do too, quite candidly, is like I, I, I'll make these wines separately, but many times I'll then blend them into something else. So, so like yeah. we have something at, at the Malaya State Vineyards, we have something called, it's uh, Hudson Heritage Red. 
I only have like 10 or 15 vines of many of these varieties. I mean, I don't have like an acre of a hundred different varieties. It's like 10 vines of this, 20 vines of that. So we'll make a blend that's called Hudson Heritage Red and it'll have grapes that were developed in the Hudson Valley, but it'll have like 10 different varieties. You'll have Bacchus in there and Umilian and Black Prince and Black Eagle and, you know, a lot of things you kind of do it that way. So at least you'll get a flavor of what those wines are like and then kind of doing it that way. So. Yeah, beautiful. Right. And it allow I mean, it gives you flexibility in an ecological sense, too. If, if you have a bad vintage for some of those grapes and others do well, you can increase that that percentage yep. in the blend and vice versa. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I, I really like that. Now, you you mentioned re- disease resistance and, and cold hardiness, specifically with disease resistance, because that, you know, ties into organic farming, things like that. How mm-hmm. have you measured? How do you measure that? And, and what are you seeing? And I mean, how... How does that play into your overall scheme? Well, that's that's one of the things I mean, I look at, and that's one of the, the reasons I'm attracted to the older varieties is because many times they're actually much more disease, they're fu- more fungus disease resistant, and they're actually much cold hardier than some of the varieties that are being used now, particularly the ones that come from Europe. So I kind of like them for that reason, because they are, they're hybrids that were bred for productivity and either for table grapes or making quality wine, but they want to make sure they were productive and that they didn't get as many fungus disease. So, and then like say when they were, these were bred from the 1860s to like 1920, there wasn't really a lot of spray material that you could use. So they were trying to do things that naturally you wouldn't need to use pesticides because they didn't have pesticides. I mean, then they kind of figured out from France after the phylloxera thing, like in the 1880s, that if you sprayed sulfur, that would kind of cut down some fungus diseases or copper sulfate, which which is a heavy metal. So that's all they had. So they were trying to develop grapes that were resistant to various diseases because they came from the U.S. And then in the wild, they're resistant to it. So you're trying to breed in quality from either European grapes or bigger buried uh, Native American grapes like Concord, but you're also trying to breed in other things that are like disease resistance or like, say, in Texas, a lot of the, the, the Native American grapes were hybridized with um, with with uh, grapes that were up, up north because they were actually very drought resistant. So like this year, many of the grapes that I have that were had great native species grapes that were originally from Texas did better than some of the ones that came from New England because mm. they have a tap root. They don't mind droughts. They don't mind heat. They, you know, so there was a lot of very different things, that, you know, that way as far as like, the, I guess that's the way I got into this is because I like the idea of growing things and not spraying things. I'd rather be yeah. in the pool. <laughs> I'd rather be anywhere else instead of like doing it that way. So I just much rather yeah. not do it that way. So, yeah. And I don't I like mean, using hot stuff, so I don't do that either. So. Hot stuff, you mean like the... I mean, like the really poisonous. I mean, a lot of times yeah. people, stuff people spray is like really bad. I mean, I do like... Yes. So like not the hot stuff, so yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, even even if you cared nothing about the environment or your own health or the health of those that you know live and work around you, just sheer laziness would make you have more disease exactly. resistance, I think. And I'm more that. I'm just lazy. I'd rather just be at the pool. Yeah, that's what I'd rather just be at the pool, so I just do it that way, so... Um, well, you mentioned already just like a, a dozen different names or more of grapes that I, you know, probably a lot of people haven't ever even heard before. Can you, I mean, as a way into some of these, are there any that you're noticing? Let's let's stick with disease resistance for now. But I mean, do you have any that just don't need to be sprayed? 
like at all like or mm-hmm. or that you you they you've all noticed need something if nothing else like sulfur i think or like you know just some of the, the 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 lighter pesticides but sulfur will help quite a bit too and also too if you have a higher tolerance for disease you'll still get something so i mean you may get you might have uh, initially or you could have gotten four ton an acre but if you're willing and many organic growers do this with grapes like I don't want to spray, so I'm I'm going to tolerate the fact that I could have gotten four tons or five tons an acre, but I'm only going to get two ton an acre, and you just accept that. Right. The only thing is, like, when it comes from the standpoint of if there's a lot of fungus diseases on them, you're getting less yield, so you're doing the same amount of work for less yield. But more importantly, once you bring them into the cellar and you're making wine, you've got wine, you've got grapes that got, like, lots of nasties all over. So you have to do a lot of things to make sure that the wines come out clean. Right, right, right. Yeah, these are really good points. Do yeah. You... So, and again, I'm not an organic grower per se, but I'm saying like I, I, they're they're more they're ones that are much more disease fungus disease resistant. So you don't have to use as many of those things. And also, too, since I, I'm not an organic grower per se, there might be other things that you can use organically as spray materials that I'm not familiar with. Then at some point, I'll spend more time with that. But I've got my 107 grape rice, so I'm just kind of working it that way. But I mean, these tend to have more disease resistance, so. I think there's more people who are studying and trying to find other organic sprays they can use to kind of keep down fungus diseases. So at least it's easier because they have some resistance of their own. Got it. Now, I mean, you mentioned this past year, which was a drought year there on the East Coast. Did you did you notice any decrease in fungal pressure because of less rain or does the humidity stay so high that it didn't really matter? And it was, um, we didn't have as much fungus disease because it was really dry and really hot. And they like, okay. they like, they like humid, but they also, there was a lot of sunny days here, but they, they like humidity. So it wasn't really that humid because it was just hot and dry. So we did have, we did not have as much disease pressure this year for that. But again, certain varieties like uh, the riparia ones, like Baco Noir, they, they're, uh, that's a Native American species. Uh, yeah. And that's bred into Bacanoir. They tend to like have surface roots. So they did not do as well because they're close to the surface. So there's not much, you know, there's not much moisture in the soil. Well, groups like say Burden and Shelwa and a chance hybrid that I had found called Palmer, that has a taproot. So that goes way down. So they had no problem with the drought at all because of that. So many times, like in the book I wrote, Grapes of the Hudson Valley, I gave the genetic history of a grape variety and what the parents and grandparents were. So you'll have an idea of like what the, what the, what the, aptitude would be for a variety based on the parents and grandparents. So that's one of the things I did too. And again, with the changing climate, I find myself kind of going into that land of like trying to identify out of that 107, which varieties are drought resistant, which ones don't need as much fungus disease protection, which ones make, you know, good quality wines. You kind of do it that way. You need to look genetically at what the parents and grandparents were of those particular varieties. So that's how I kind of got into it. First, it was a hobby. So I could grow grapes and not spray. And now with the changing climate, I'm using that information to kind of suggest to other growers, like if you grow this variety, it's disease, it's disease resistant. If you grow this variety, it's drought resistant. If you want to make like a light kind of like a Beaujolais kind of wine, you use this grape. So like, cause each of these grapes have different attributes in the cellar too. Cause you want to make sure that like, you don't have to spray in so much. They're cold hardy, but more importantly, once you have them, you can make wines that are nice wine that, that people want to drink. 
Right. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. There are varieties that are like indestructible in the field and you get them and there's really not a lot you can do with them in the cellar. So you got like right. something like, great, I got this stuff and no one wants it. So yeah. So. Right. Well, you mentioned, okay, you've mentioned roots multiple times. So I, I think one of the great advantages for anybody who's like thinking about converting from, you know, vinifera to, to these, to more of the style of uh, viticulture is own rooted. Can you talk about the advantages to being able to grow grapes that are just, they, that are growing on their own roots? It's a lot easier. It is a lot <laughs> easier. So um, particularly like with the, the, we're finding here, at least, and I, uh, we're, we're starting to find out, I think with the changing climate, it isn't like it's on average going to be two degrees warmer every day. So you kind of have the same thing. What you're finding is you're having much more violent swings as far as like precipitation and, and, um, and temperature. So what you're finding is the summers, at least in the Hudson Valley, are a lot warmer than they used to be, but there also is a lot more rain. But what you're finding is that like in the fall, it's a little bit warmer than it used to be. So the vines aren't hardening off. And because of the polar vortex or what's going on in the uh, Antarctic, in, in the Arctic, what you have is it seems like around every, every Christmas or like every other Christmas in at least in upstate New York, you're having these these, these Basically, we, we call them the, 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 these Christmas massacres. We just had another one <laughs> last year. Isn't that nice? So, but I, we, I've experienced probably five of those in the last 12 years, and they're becoming much more frequent. So this year, we had um, temperatures that were like uh, like probably four and five degrees warmer than they would have been, like, say, November and December. So they haven't hardened off quite as much as they as we would have liked to them. And then on Christmas Eve, it went from 53 degrees to seven degrees in 12 hours wow. yep. and they don't like that so it's, it's sort of like an, it's just like, it's like a geriatric patient if you put them like in a steam bath and you say okay let's put them in the ice bath now and see what happens they don't fare so well so uh, i mean i'm just saying it's a practical matter it's just like same thing with with uh, vines if they're warm like that and they get really cold like that basically what they do is they start cracking because basically if you have anything that's really warm when it gets cold it contracts so basically you're making this thing that's really expansive then it contracts so it cracks and then then after this vortex thing occurred around christmas then it got warm again so like right now we're experiencing temperatures that are on average three to five degrees warmer than they would normally be during this period of time. Like right now, it is 34 degrees and it's raining and it's the middle of January. So you would think it would not be the case. And this is probably the low of the day and it's going to get warmer later on today. So it's like it's it, it's like that. So by having mm. own rooted, so with this vortex thing, basically what happens is they're warm, they're big, they get really cold, they constrict, they crack, and then they get warm again, they expand. So basically you got all these cracks and that kills the plants. If right. you have... Um, a, a, a Zion, if you've got a rootstock that's on a Zion, which is the plant above that you're really trying to grow, what that's going to mean is that the plant above is going to be dead and you're going to have a rootstock down below, which won't make not quality wine, they'll make terrible wines because they're, they were they were developed and identified to be rootstocks that would add certain things, a certain amount of flow and sugars to like the, the, the Zion, which is above. So 
if you've got grafted vines, a year like this, you may find out that many of your vinifera varieties, which are all grafted, like your Chardonnays and your Cabernet Francs and your Pinots, they'll be dead and you'll have rootstock in the bottom. While with the own rooted ones, what will happen is you'll still have live roots that will throw off shoots from the bottom and you might still get some kind of a crop. While with like a Chardonnay, it's dead. So what you either have to do is replant them or you have to like get cuttings and then graft onto the rootstock a shard as you do it that way and that'll take probably two or three years to kind of even start getting back to any kind of production while with the own rooted ones you'll get some crop that year and the following year you'll probably be almost back to normal as far as your production level nice yeah so a, i love that. it's a big deal having own rooted so, so yeah, yeah yeah so a much quicker return or recovery t- period a shorter recovery period i should say um in in the event of extreme situations like that yeah Yep, and, um, and the reason that, that and when first like when they were developing these varieties of uh, these French American hybrids in France, the different parts of the country treated the problem differently. And basically, in the richer areas like Burgundy and Bordeaux, what they did was they said we want our traditional varieties. So they want Pinot Noir, we want Cabernet Franc or Cabernet Sauvignon, we want all these varieties. So they had the money to spray copper sulfate, and they also had the ability to graft. American roots that would get rid of like the American bugs that were in, in the soil in France then, and then have their own varieties up above. In the poorer areas of France, like say in the middle part of the country and in the Rhone, they didn't have that luxury. So that's why they were hybridizing American grapes with French grapes. So they could have something called direct producers. So they didn't right. have to graft them. If they died, they would come up from the bottom. The other thing you're going to find with these French American hybrids, what they bred for is that, um, as you're seeing it more and more now, but it's still so prevalent in the past is that you have late spring frosts. So with Amer- with French hybrids, what you could do like Chalois, they tend to bud out late, but if they have a spring frost that kills them, they have a secondary bud and a secondary crop. So you'll still get some kind of a crop with the vinifers. Mm-hmm. You get Zach, you're done. So that you're done right. for the year completely. So the vine might not be completely dead, but <clears throat> you're not going to get a crop. Right. So that's and, the plus. That's the other plus that was bred in to direct producers. That like they have a secondary crop if there's a late spring frost, um, and then if there was a, a something a, another you know the, the, the you know the, the 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 Christmas you know massacre thing again where basically everything's dead. You've got to like redo everything. So right, right. <laughs> well, I mean, if I remember correctly, a lot of those. Uh, direct producers became illegal then that were being grown there in those other parts of France. They so were they... most, and, and again, that was, that's politics on why they did it. Most of the ones that became illegal are actually ones that were developed in the U.S. So like grapes like Ona, uh, like Noah. Um, Clinton, right. Clinton, which I grow, and it's, like, it's, it's a nice variety. But one of the reasons why it became outlawed really, like say in the 1930s, again, this tug of war between the wealthier people who controlled Bordeaux and Burgundy and the middle part of the country, what was happening is that the direct producers were much more productive. So you could make wine at half, a third, a quarter of the cost, and you have to spray. So what happens is like the people who, and one of the things you're going to find is that those vineyards that were owned by people in Burgundy and Bordeaux, they were wealthy people who had houses in Paris. So basically they ran the government Sort of like Long Island. You got like your, your Long Island homes. You got a house in New York City and you got one in Long Island. Many of the people who were wealthy in Paris had their their uh, their Bordeaux. They had their, their, their vineyards in those pipes. So they didn't like the idea of being 
competing against ones that were like highly productive. So what they did was like certain varieties, they just banned outright. And then most of the other French American hybrids, they're not banned. What they are is they're, they're at best tolerated. So what they would try and do as much as and then, then actually that's a classification. It was like prohibited, tolerated. No, it was like something left like prohibited, right. cautionary, and then uh, there's another word which is like probation. It was like you can like grow a little bit of these things. So what they were trying to do is get those out because these French American hybrids are actually much more productive and they were actually beating in the marketplace the kinds of wines that were being made in those other areas because they were just you could make the wine a lot cheaper. The other uh, thing you could find in France at that time in the 1930s is that if you've most well, wait, can I stop you a second? Oh, sure. Because I, I think the story that gets told is they were they were prohibited because they were lower quality. I mean, that's the myth that we get that has been spread. Oh, some of, yeah, I mean, some. I mean, the, the ones that were actually prohibited were probably lower quality. So, like the the Noah and the Clinton. I mean, if you know how to make them right, they're fine. But I mean, but they're not French wines. So, yes, yeah, so, I mean, there's there's okay. that attitude too. But really, it was the competition that they they didn't like at all. Well, but that's what I'm, thing, that's what that's what I'm getting at. Is it is it mm-hmm. really was it really lower quality or was it was that like? They were probably uh, lower quality. Oh, I think. Oh, yeah. Right. They were. They were definitely a little bit. They were a little bit lower quality. But the other thing, at least okay. when it comes to the politics of this, is that um, if you have like uh, France is actually a much more agrarian economy than like say Germany or England. So a lot of people in the 1930s lived and worked on the farm. So if you have people who are able to produce a lot more grapes than their same farm, they had surpluses of grapes. So. If you uh, keep on that going along, it means you have farmers going bankrupt because they can't afford yeah, yeah because the it's, prices went down. So so right. what they wanted to do is they wanted to keep people on the farm. So they says these things uh, that are like direct producers that you don't have to spray so much that are really efficient, that's giving us too many grapes. So we want you to rip them out and put other ones that are much more expensive to grow, that will have less productivity so that you'll stay on the farm. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, which is which is really true, but but I, I will emphasize again, like the grapes like Noah and Clinton. I mean, they're not as good as like some of the men- French vinifers, but also they're not as good as some of the French American hybrids too. But those that issue or problem, like they're trying to keep people on the farm right. and out of going into like the cities because they be because they had to have them to do something. So they said, we're going to have you grow these ones that are much more inefficient. So you'll stay on the farm and that will be how that works out. So that's, that's fascinating. Yeah. So I'm yeah, saying there's a lot of different people who had different reasons on why they wanted to prohibit these varieties. So, but kind of going back to some of the French hybrids that I had been uh, evaluating, there's a guy by the name of Philip Wagner, who um, he was the editor of the Baltimore sun, which is a newspaper in Baltimore, but he was the editor of the European edition. And he, liked and was a very big champion of bringing French American hybrids to the United States. So he did it that way. And what he told me when I had talked to him, he died, Oh God, probably like, I don't know, 1995. And he was an old fellow. Then I was looking for like newer hybrids that were being developed. And he says, there's so many other older hybrids that were never really fully evaluated. Spend my time with that. Because remember, when most of these grapes were being developed, like from the 1860s, really 1880s to like, say, 1940s, they weren't evaluated as well as they could have been because during that period of time, France had the Franco-Prussian War. They had the Panic of 1893. 
They had World War One. They had the Great Depression. They had World War Two. So during all these periods of times, people weren't thinking about evaluating grape varieties. So a yeah. lot of so a lot of so a lot of ones that were actually um, developed like like by uh, Johnny Burden are lovely wines that take like Chardonnay, taste like Pinot Noir. They're much more productive. You don't have to spray them, but they were they were evaluated. But there was in the end. At that point, the French government was like, no, we don't want ones that taste like Chardonnay, that are more productive, that you don't have to spray as much. We want you to go Chardonnay because we want you on the farm. So so you did it that way. But And also, too, growers weren't evaluating as much as possible because they were just, just – I mean, think of that. You know, World War II, yeah. World War I, yeah. the Great Depression. So big, they're not thinking about, is yeah. the Burden 6055 as good as the – you know, they weren't doing it that way. So what – and since uh, Philip Wagner had, was living in Europe at the time, he realized that. So he was like, there's all these ones that were not evaluated the way they should have been, or they're ripped out because for reasons that were more political. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned this now with the productivity a couple of times. I mean, this is another advantage, generally speaking, of these hybrid grapes. Um, if, if somebody's, you know, thinking about productivity, you know, which I think as farmers, we all do think about to a certain extent, um, you know, more more or less, depending on what kind of farming we're doing. Mm-hmm, but that's mm-hmm. that is a big deal, and I mean, it's fascinating that, that played a part in in their being uh, banned. I, you know, obviously there are other reasons at play. It's not a one, you know, nothing's that simple. They but were just too good at what they did. That was they the were too good. They were just too that. good at what they did. And they said, "No, we don't want that. We want uh, you to be on the farm." So yeah, right, right. It it solved multiple. I mean, the more productive, also you know, probably less loss from the fungal pressures as well because they were a little more resistant to those things because that's what they were bred for to for people who could didn't have the ability to spray with you know a lot of yep. you know, didn't have the that. So that's very fascinating as well. Well, now you've mentioned uh yeah i mean you are growing them to make wine with and you're evaluating their flavors have you can you talk about you know like what i mean obviously there's with all the names that you sort of have tossed her out there already it's like i'm imagining each of these has a different flavor and so we have like all this untapped potential to discover if if these could become a little more wi- widely known what what i mean what are you finding as you're making wine with these? Like what kind I of think experience, find, like, well, flavor experiences? I mean, there's like, I mean, again, if you're not going to grow like 40 different varieties, but I'm saying if you want to make a certain style of wine, you can use certain grape varieties that will get you to where you want to go. So, but it does do is it broadens the palate that a winemaker has to make different kinds of wine. Like for right. instance, or for example, there's a guy, uh, E.S. Rogers, who was uh, from like Salem, Massachusetts. So he came from a mercantile family, but his hobby was developing grape varieties. So he hybridized Black Hamburg, which is a Muscat variety, with a grape called Carter, which is like a Labrusca, Concordy kind of thing that's from that area. And they're lovely wines. They're like kind of Moscato, but they're soft and they're nice. So if you want that palate, you can grow things that are disease resistant, cold hardy, and make like a Moscato. So if you want to go that way, you can do that way. Uh, That Johnny Burden I talked about, um, he hybridized grapes and he lived in the southern part of Burgundy. And what he was trying to develop was grapes that would taste like a Chardonnay and taste like a Pinot. So many of his, and he's, he was very successful and I, I grow and like push his grapes quite a bit because they taste like a Pinot, they taste like a Chardonnay. So oh, it's kind of good lovely. that way. They have the same kind of flavor profiles of like, you know, red raspberry, strawberry jam, barnyard, soft tan. I mean, all the same kind of things, but they're much more resistant because 
unlike Pinot, which is only from one species of grape, Vinifera, what you're going to find is like a lot of the Burden ones will also have a lot of other American species in there, which, which makes them much more disease resistant and then resistant to fungus diseases and to cold. So you'll have like Estevalis, which is from Texas, Riparius, right. which is from Oklahoma. You'll have all these varieties. So basically it's a much more resilient variety, but they can make very similar style wine. So, but what I'm trying to do is like, and right. And I'm, by the way, I've got a second edition of this book coming out, which is going to have two new chapters on grapes that are developed in the New England area. So it's going to have all those, those in there. But if you're a grower and you want to get like a disease resistant variety, you can say, I want to make Pinot Noir style wines. You're not going to right. grow like 40 of them. You're going to grow like the Burden varieties, the Sable varieties. So if I was trying to make a Pinot out of a hybrid, I would put in Baco Noir, Chelois Noir. I put in a little Foch and I would put a lot of Burden in. Burden 6055 and then 11402. And you'd have that's a, a, a good vineyard that was productive that was resilient to climate change that could make something like a Pinot Noir. And one thing I'm finding too, is like a lot of the comments of people I'm talking to are actually on the West coast, because as you know, there's lots of things going on in California as far as like fires and droughts and floods. And I think what they're finding is that like in certain parts of California where they were able, where they grew nice Pinots, they're seeing that that may not happen so much or on a consistent basis anymore. <laughs> yes. So, so what they're actually, I've been spending a lot of time with people in the California area and they want to know about the Burdens and they want to know about Baco and they want to know about Shelwa. Nice. Yeah. That's really yeah. exciting to hear. I love So, to hear I do that. it that way because basically, if you have a full, because I mean, even if like you have a drought, I think you have irrigation there, but at some point there won't be any water on the ground left. So they're trying to think of like, how do you do this dry farming? So, and also too, if you've got like direct producers, it means that if you have a really bad year, it isn't like the plant dies, you got to like redo them, you've got a direct producer. So, but I'm finding right. out that you can, there's people on the West Coast who want to know about these varieties because they need to do things differently, I think. Yeah, it just seems smart. I mean, I mean the other the other point that you made uh, not not while we've been talking here, but I think we you made it offline about the the productivity of these is, you know, from an ecological standpoint, if you're getting the same quality but more tons to the acre, that's less acreage that we have to take away from say forest or other you know yep. other you know like wild landscape that would be better mm -hmm. used for not grapes for example um yes, you so, have marginal lands yes there's marginal lands that could go back into woods because or some other use because you don't need to have as much acreage that's that's true the other thing that happened too is like that boy hybrids got not such a good rep is that they didn't spend the time to learn how to make wine out of them at least in the u.s so what happened right. was they said okay we're gonna, like particularly like in the new york state area you had big bulk producing uh, wineries so they would make a hybrid wine and they they were trying to get eight ton an acre so if you're going eight ton an acre of a chardonnay or a baco noir it's not going to be good quality wine so they would say well these wines don't taste very good They're like yeah but if you're trying to get eight ton an acre it's not going to be a good wine so if you had a right. pinot noir you're trying to get eight ton an acre it's not going to be a good wine so <laughs> i think so i think what you have to do is you have to treat these hybrids like you would have vinifera like real grapes that are making a real wine and if basically if you're keeping them at like say four or five right. ton an acre then you're then you're fine so you know right. that way but at least when it comes to the growing attributes of these varieties since they're fungus disease resistant they can survive a late spring frost they can survive the winter it means they can consistently produce 
three to four tons an acre as opposed to one ton this year, four ton the next year. So you're doing consistently, you, you can do it that right. way. So, right. so that's, that's where the productivity comes in. The fact that like they gotcha. can be consistently grown every year as opposed to if it's a good year, they're fine. If it's not a good year, you don't get grapes. So Right. Well, the other, I mean, I said you could use less acreage, but another option would be to just grow them less intensively, like with a more, like with tree integrated system mm-hmm. for example this is what i'm really excited about is like we're integrating trees into vineyards and making a vineyard more of a, a multi-story mm-hmm. or at least uh, you know especially in places like california where heat is becoming things some of that shade won't be so uh, unwelcome around the vines if, if there's more trees mm-hmm. integrated in mm-hmm. and around the other thing is you got to think about birds too because birds love trees and they love grapes so sometimes you have you yes have well, there there, <laughs> there are yeah, some problems to solve with this i am yeah. uh, very aware <laughs> yeah, yeah no you're love right Well, um, can you tell me specifically about Cedar Cliff and like what, you know, so if anybody is looking at your notes, they know what your soil is like and how you're trellising these grapes to, to, to sort of have a comparative analysis, you know, with what they're doing, where they are. Oh, I see. I've never really thought about it that way. That's interesting. I pretty much what I do is I just I just trowel them all. Pretty, I basically, I look how they grow and then I prune them differently depending how they are. Like some of the okay. some of the ones that are like like the Burdens, they grow more like vinifers. They grow upright, so you okay. prune them differently than you would like a Concord or like say an Empire State, which has more Labrusca. You prune them differently, so you just yeah. prune them differently. So I don't. I guess I feel that um. I guess I have enough What's, to do. So, so, so I guess I don't, I don't teach people how to prune per, per se. <laughs> so, right. and again, I've got do a you, lot of work. Are, hmm? are you doing then like a VSP? Or are you doing a top cordon? I do top cordon. Uh, and okay, I, the reason it. I do this because it's easier. So, and then, I mean, a long, not a long time ago, my, my kids are like in their mid, late 20s right now. They used to help me prune. So basically, and then their friends wanted to help. And I pay them 10 bucks an hour, but I had to have a simple way for them to prune. So I says, there's a trunk. Don't cut that. The cord, leave it alone and leave spurs. So that's why I just found it was just a lot easier. And also, yeah. too, like, I mean, and, and Cornell's working on like a lot more mechanized pruning where you have these machines, but there's a lot of hills here. Oh, so wow. it wouldn't really work here at all. So right. I tried to find a system that was really easy so anyone could do it. And for me, that is <laughs> your, this teen, your teenage, <laughs> your teenage yeah. helpers can do it. Yeah, yes, exactly. Nice. Or, or an older person or, or whatever, or someone who's not very experienced after like you see a few right. vines, you can figure it out and you do it that way. But if you do a VSP or you do a CUCA, high renewal, all that kind of stuff, there's a yeah. lot of thinking involved. And I wanted something really, really simple. So, and I'm a really simple person. So that's why I did that. <laughs> so simple, slow, depending how you want to look at it. So, um, but that's why I try to do things that are like really easy and I try to do them uniformly. So no matter what it was, I have a control as far as like, if it's all pruned this way, this will be more productive or less productive. The other thing I find out with, with the VSP and some of the other ones that you'll, which I find kind of intuitive, they'll, they'll, they'll be pruned. They're really high productive. So you can get six ton an acre. And then what they do is they pull off half the crop because they only want to get three ton an acre. So like, why prune something so you can get six tons, knowing you don't want six tons, and you're going to rip it off? I'd rather just prune with the the, 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 the high uh, the, the 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 cord high renewal. Basically, it's a simple system. You'll get three or four ton an acre. It's not a productive system as far as pruning, but basically, all I want is three ton an acre. So why try and get six and then spend more time ripping off the crop? I don't understand that. At least myself. I mean, the the only plus is that like if 
you trying to get six and you have bad things happen. You're going to three, th- then you do it that way as opposed to go to zero. But I kind of just yeah. Why why it. drop fruit? Why not just grow for the right? Yeah, I just do it that way. And the, yeah, so so yeah. the so the, God, the, that the makes yeah. So, so the one the, so the system I use is not the most is not the most uh, productive. But I'm kind of not. And right now, I'm really just trying to evaluate the variety. So I try to like prune them in a similar style so I can compare apples to apples. Nice. Yeah, I get that. And and what's your soil like there? Are you I know New York tends to be pretty rocky. Are you are are you getting more of the river like alluvial stuff or Oh, it it's pretty... rocky. Oh yeah. yeah. It's, it, it's, a, it's it's basically it's a uh, it's called Nassau Bath Complex. So it is a it's a it's a it's a uh, it's it's a loam. So it's a it's, it's a heavy loam. So and then underneath um actually the, the substrata is actually very similar to uh, board or to burgundy so basically what we have is limestone and flint so we have a lot of limestone here. so so like in, okay. in, in champagne i think it's limestone there so in chalk so it's right. very similar that way so the substrate is pretty good that way but it's mostly lime soil flint and then we've got this uh layer of um, clay but it's like it's a, a, a soft it's a loam clay so so it so okay. drains off pretty good so and that as well as like it's not premium land but then again i had a day job Bought a farm. It was good <laughs> enough, and I moved on. Right. I figured I, I could right. wait till I'm sixty and oh. then finally buy a farm. But I bought one when I was thirty, so I figured that's how you do it. It's fine. It's near a major road. The schools are good. It's near a road, so like if the place gets plowed, it was safe. It's fine. That's how I yeah. look at it. That way. But again, will- it's sort of it's sort of like a, a um a control too. If these grapes can do well here, they'll do really well if you have a, a, a better site. I think so. Well, this is like. Yeah, you're a good person to ask this historical question, but you know, I just heard this recently, and and it makes a lot of sense to me that you know vines were never meant to be grown in the prime agricultural land. They were the they were the crop that you grew in your marginal land, so that's why they were sort of up on the sort of rocky hillsides and things like that, because you saved this nice fertile valley flat areas for your food crops that you needed to survive, and then the vines were the sort of how you maximized all the land by using the marginal land for it was a place to put. Yeah, it was exactly. Yeah, it was, it was for the other things. For, but also too, quite candidly, if you're on a hillside, they're probably not as productive as they would be on the bottom land, but the grapes wouldn't grow. They would not be as good grapes. They would be watery. You'd have a lot. To, again, you right, have eight right. ton an acre as opposed to three ton an acre. And you have like these flabby wines that right. wouldn't taste very <laughs> good. So I think you, you get right. more quality for in the side of the hill, I think. So. Right. And I wonder which came first if they realized if they started growing them up there and then the quality, they realized the quality was also better or, or they knew that the quality was better if they, anyway. It was probably know. a little, it was probably a little, of both, yeah. but also too, yeah, like when little. they were doing this and figuring this out, like in the 12th century, they were probably just trying to stay alive. I think that's right. kind of, you know, <laughs> right, so right, it's right. like, you know, do I want a, a better bouquet or I want like, you know, my <laughs> barnyard element or like, you know, look, I'm eating lard and like the, the black plague is going on. So I got the black death on my head. You know, so I like the black death. I think like a third of the population died. So like you had the same yeah. problems, like there's all these open fields and no one to like, them, yeah. because they were yeah. dead you know so yeah. i think they had like, bigger fish to fry i guess so, <laughs> you're probably yeah, not right. like, it's a really a terrible thing but i'm saying like they were like just trying <laughs> Sorry. To get through they were just trying to get yeah. through life think, yeah you know, no it so. fits it fits in perspective yeah absolutely yeah. now <laughs> you uh you are making a i mean obviously you want these to catch on for as wine grapes you're doing stuff with this with uh malaya state vineyards and mm-hmm. 
I, I would love you to talk about that and what you're doing with them, but also just to talk about what you're finding specifically. If we, if you want to get technical about what's working with some of these varieties to make a good wine, like have you found any interesting tips or tricks or techniques that are different than, you know, your experience with vinifera or anything like that? Anything like that would be really fascinating, I think, for sure. everybody okay. listening who um, wants to work what with. I find, again, um, what I find is that when it comes to the hybrids, you just have to cr- treat them like real grapes. So if you're getting three or right. four ton an acre, you can make good wines of them. The other thing, too, is what I, I find is that... Treat them like real grapes. That should just, be our as slogan. As opposed to just like, whatever, <laughs> just get as much as you can. And, you know, you want to make sure that you're getting the right kind of varieties, but also to the right production levels so you can make quality wines. The other thing, too, is that I find is that um, I tend to make more softer reds and whites. So like my, my whites tend to be more like taste like like a chardonnay or like a loire and my uh, reds tend to be more uh, burgundian and many sauce so they're like soft kind of red wines they do it that way what i find is many of the hybrids they won't make like a cabernet sauvignon they won't make these big huge things because they don't have the tannins and the skins to do that so i don't even try and do that so i think just knowing what kind of styles you can make out of these things so with my reds i tend to like with tobaccos and the shell was the burdens i tend to make more pinot like wines to begin with so i don't let them sit in the skins as much time and i do a lot of blending like what you'll find is like in bordeaux and burgundy do a lot of blending so even in burgundy they only use a grape called pinot noir but there's probably 10 major clones are used there so they're blending just they're blending different clones to make wine so what i find the best way with hybrids is that one will have a nice nose one will have a nice after finish one will have a nice middle one will have some tannins so with many of my wines that we make up leia they're blended wines so so they're so they're softer more approachable reds that are blended so i think with hybrids you have to blend them so okay. and i think for quite a while in the u.s they were big and having you know varietal wines so like only cabernet sauvignon or whatever but in france and in germany and, uh, and i think in italy they do a lot of blending so i think with yeah. hybrid you blend them and you know that you're not going to make a big huge bordeaux kind of a wine you can make more of a burgundian wine you're gonna make a like a loire or a nebbiello. yellow you're gonna make a, like a, a northern italian red so you do it that way so i think you just know the limitations of what they can do and just stick with them so i think that that's what i would that's what i would say too and actually that's the other part by working with malaya I'm able to like make blends and then sell the wines that way, uh, that way. So people can know what these grapes will do. So what we do is we'll do like seminars on like, you know, here's this grape, here's that grape. We'll do is we'll say, here's it separately. Here's it as a blend. So you kind of learning how to blend because that's what one, many winemakers do is they make blends. So, but I think hybrids tend to lend themselves more to blends while I think with vinifera, it seems that there's those who still think you should just have 100% Chardonnay in it, 100% Cabernet Sauvignon, and I just don't think that it lends itself with with hybrids. So yeah, yeah, I had your Baco and I think a white blend, uh, and both. I mean, you know, I don't I, just delicious table wines, and I don't want that to sound derogatory at all. Like, I mean, it was just like if you if I didn't if it didn't have Baco written on it or. I forget what the white wine uh, had on it, but if I didn't, you know, if I, if I wasn't thinking about it, if I was sitting down at a nice dinner and, you mm-hmm. know, somebody came around and was like, would you like the white or the red? It wouldn't have mattered. You know, it was just like delicious, perfect wine, you know, paired well, just delicious. easy. You don't have to think a lot yeah. about it. It's just yeah, something it nice and like, you know, and it's got like, cause what you're going to find too is like when you're running a winery and you're trying to enter competitions, what you need to do is like, you have to make these big huge wines to win in competitions because 
you'll have a, an evaluator that's going to taste a hundred wines that way. So right. you have to have something that's like big, huge, juicy. So they'll remember and say, Oh, I like that one. So I'll put that one right. on one that way. But those nice, subtle kind of like soft wines, they don't win competitions. But when you sit down right. and have a, 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 a glass of wine, you'll have a second while those, those winners, what they'll do is like, you have one glass, you're like, yep, I'm done. I know all about yeah. that. <laughs> you go to something else. Yeah. So I try to make something that's very drinkable. That's what I try and do. So, oh, and yeah. I think the um the white wine we had, we had a Jefferson, but that had sold out. So a uh, Bruce Tripp is uh, a winemaker, one the, the primary winemaker at Malaya, and then he had made a blend, and it had in it, oh, what was it? I think it was Vidal Vignol. And I think a little Tremonet and Saval in it. So it was a blended white, but it had those. And those are also Heritage Grape Fries. But he's been making that wine for quite a while. So that was the white wine you had. So I think it was called Papa Joe White. So that's the grandfather of the fellow <laughs> who right. owned the property. So there's a picture of the guy with the cigar. That That's that one. But Bruce Tripp had made that wine. And that's a blend of, say, I think a, a Vignol, Vidal, maybe some Tremonet, and I believe some Saval Blanc too. That, so the same thing. Like what you'll find is like right, with, yeah. white, with whites, most people also do varietal wines for whites, and I find blending whites is actually much better. They all there's much more yeah. approachable. They're much more fun. They're easier going. I just find it's just a lot better that way. So anyway, so yeah. I just want to put a, a shout out to Bruce because he he does that wine very very well, and we're trying to make more of that. So nice, yeah. And I mean, anything else you want to say about working with Malaya? Um, I'm just trying to think right now. I just want to thank them because it's really helpful to like have a commercial winery. So once the wines are made there, they sell them. So I can go back to the vineyard and just figure out like how to make good quality wines and how to like grow grapes that can like survive with the changing climate and just doing that. I'm just trying to like just make sure I could like just make sure it's that way. So it's nice to have a place where like the wines are made, they're served, and then also if people like yourself call up and say, I would like to have a Baco Noir, or I would like to have a Shawa or a little Cornell, I could say, go there, you can go online and then buy them and just do it. Yeah, where is that? What's that? What's their website? Oh, it's it's really easy. It's MalayaEstateVineyard.com. So it's the name of the winery. So it's MalayaEstateVineyard.com. Got it. Thanks. And if you go there and you hit it, and also too, if you hit uh, the website that, and they helped me develop this one, the one that's HudsonValleyHeritageWines.com. HudsonValleyHeritageWines.com. If you go there and look at the pictures of the grape varieties, there's a place you can go there that then brings you to the Malaya site to buy them if you want to buy those wines. Great. Love it. Well, this is all... Okay, I like the Baco or I like the Showa. I got these blends. You can do over there and then you can go that way and and pick them up that way. So, And again, it's kind of hard because like most people don't know much about these varieties. So you, so you, you have to go with it that way but they're nice soft approachable reds and whites that's why i try and do them nice yeah no me too it's uh, i mean look you've laid out a pretty good case for uh you know somebody either dipping their toes or just jumping into the deep end with these things i think um Mm -hmm. do you have any real quick too is like please the heritage wines that that we make at uh malaya state vineyards i mean it's a very small portion what they make they make mostly vinifera wine so they make right Chardonnay, they make Grunewald liner. They actually tend to specialize more Central European vinifera grapes. So Grunewald liner and Blaufrankisch and Cabernet Franc um, and different kind of Pinots. So they're like French or, or uh, 
Central European, but they grow mostly and make wines mostly at a vinifera variety. So what I do is a very, very small portion. So once you go to the website, they have all that stuff too, and they're great wines. And I say, buy them early and buy them off. And that's what I say. So <laughs> lovely. Any, any other closing words for, you know, just in general about not necessarily Malaya, but just in general about these heritage grapes or, and, and their importance or anything at all, any wisdom that you. I think they're important because of the changing climate. It's going to give more tools to growers to grow things that will live and it'll give more, uh, more, I guess, color to a winemaker as far as the kinds of wines they make. There's another fellow, his name is Jerry Iserhold, and he runs something called Terra Vox Vineyards or Winery, which is yeah. in Kansas City. Okay, and what he does is he's doing something similar, only with grapes that are developed more in the Texas and Missouri area, Midwest, but like Oklahoma. more Missouri, like that way. And he's very nice fellow, but he's doing the same thing mostly with with the TV Munson hybrid. So he's he's kind of he's kind of doing that right there. So that's a, kind of a shout out to him. So um, yeah, you know, I, I actually. There's a nice uh, a podcast episode on this podcast with. Oh, with cool! Him. I'll look yeah. at that. Okay, very yeah. nice guy. Very, very nice guy. So, yeah. but again, just kind of really summing heavy. up whatever. I'm just trying to like encourage growers to put things in the ground that will live, that will make, that will be components that winemakers use to make quality wines and do it that way. But do it in a way which is like ecologically sustainable. And I think from the standpoint of your listeners, they have a higher probability of being being able to be successfully grown in an organic manner, I think. So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love that. Well, thank you. Thanks okay, so much. Thank I really appreciate this conversation. It's really, really fun and super informative. I think it's like a fire hose of information, really, for anybody who's uh, interested in these things. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Good. Okay. Well, well, thank you very much for your time. And I hope people like it and just kind of go from there, I guess. So. Yeah. We thought we were done, but Turns out we had a few more questions we wanted to discuss. So stay tuned for this next little bit. The, the other thing that you're trying to work on with these varieties is to make them more widely available. And what's the what's the challenge there? What why what's the, the challenge is that's why it's good to work with Malaya Winery is that I'm trying to you know grow varieties that make good quality wine and then have it in a place where people can buy and say, I like a Baco or I like a Jefferson. So, so basically I'm trying to create demand for the wines and thereby create the demand for the grape varieties. The difficulty that I'm also having is that I'm trying to work, I'm working with various nurseries. So I'm trying to encourage nurseries to offer these grape varieties. So if you are a commercial grower, you can call up a nursery on, and be able to order a uh, hundred plants of a Jefferson or a uh, Croton or a Humilian. So right now, most of these, many of these varieties are not sold commercially as plants. So a grower, if they mm. want to, can't. And what I do is I actually talk to and, and cooperate with a lot of growers and, and get to them, you know, disease-free uh, varieties or cuttings so they can propagate, you know, their own varieties. But it isn't like, Oh, I like that Lucrinelle that I had at Malaya State Vineyards. I want to plant that grape and grow it myself. There are no nurseries that sell that variety. So I'm trying wow. to, by increasing the profile of those varieties and the wines they make, increasing the profile to the point where there'll be some kind of demand created by growers to go to a nurse and say, I want these varieties. So that's Got the it. other kind of challenge I'm, I'm, I'm having now. So Right. That makes we'll a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, so if somebody goes to your website, um, they're gonna 
salivate and then be you know Said, hard hard up they're not going to be able to uh get what they if they decide they want something like that it's going to be very difficult for them to find that it'll be, it'll be hard to do i mean and again we talked earlier about the geneva and usually davis has this too the germplasm you can call them and get a locrinelle but you'll get 10 cuttings that means you have to propagate them yourself and then what you have to do is then as i did you then have to propagate those to kind of get a whole vineyard it isn't like you right. want to you can just call someone and say i would love a thousand or even like a hundred locrinell plants because there's just right. not that way so there's that other kind of challenge that way but i think with the changing climate there's going to be more growers who are going to be looking for things to grow that will live winders and saying I, I want to be able to make a wine that I know I consistently can get that crop every year, whether it's a Lucernel or Jefferson. And then that way I'm hoping when that starts happening, that the nurseries will say, okay, I will start planting, you know, Jefferson because they have to plant their own vineyards to have cuttings every year. So it's like that other challenge that we're doing that way is just working with the nursery community and other people and then teaching others how to propagate plants or vines. So like if they, if the nursery doesn't do it, they're able to get cuttings and then propagate their own plants so they can then put them in the field and kind of make those wines. So, yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. That's a, this is great. <laughs> I'm glad you're doing this. <laughs> yeah. Uh-oh. I'm trying. So I'll do it. That you know, was the one point I forgot. I was like, is there anything else? I was like, where was something else? And that's what it was. So it's just, yeah. All around. Yeah. So, anyway. Is there anything that we can do uh, as, I don't know, just the, 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 the wine, public the wine industry you know other people to other than to drink these wines and support them in that way is there you know are there specific actions that we could take to to get them more widely available i think i think <laughs> buying all the malaya wines you can so <laughs> actually, you know, there's, there's, there's actually there's actually another winery in ohio called bucha b-u-c-c-a and they grow some New England hybrids or uh, heritage varieties like Agawam and they grow Baco. So I think if by uh, consumers, if they look and try and like learn about these different great varieties, whether it's the website I have or the book I have or in general and say, I mean, you can still buy from some vineyards or wineries Baco and you can still buy some shell wine. I think by buying those consistently, other winemakers say if they'll buy a Baco, maybe they'll buy a Foch, maybe they'll buy a whatever. I think it's like conveying to wine writers and I think to wineries that I'm interested in buying more than just Cabernet Sauvignon or Chardonnay or Riesling. So I think by going into the winery and saying, oh, you got those things? What else do you have? Like, Do you have any heritage rights? Do you have that? And I think by creating band, demand that way or wineries hearing about the fact that there's interest for these varieties that wineries and growers will start trying to find those things too and then i can talk to them and suggest various varieties that they could use that way so i think that's always like the chicken egg thing is like no one's asking about them so why would i plant them no one's asking it for why would i make wine that had to convince people to buy it you know so if consumers go in and say I want to hear about heritage varieties. I want to hear about like either heritage varieties or sustain things that can be grown sustainably. Um, I've heard about this variety or what do you have? I think that would help kind of nudge them along as far as like planting those grapes, making wines out of the grapes. And then at that point, more importantly, uh, which is also the choke point is making sure that nurseries will plant those varieties. So growers will have something they can buy. Got it. What was, now you said there's, there is a nursery in, New Hampshire? Was that 
Did you, oh no, that, that was, the, that was the, the Ohio. That was the Bucha okay. Vineyards, and they they basically what they do is they make agawams. They make agawam and buffalo and and, uh, and baco and things like that. So, but I think if you go online, there are particularly in the, in the Northeast, and I think in the particularly in the Northeast, you're going to find ones that will sell um, a lot of like. Uh, the oddball one. So another great uh, brewer or winery is Montezuma. Uh, Phil Plummer is the winemaker there. And he has probably 20 different of these older varieties that he makes into wine. So you can buy an Iona, you can buy a Croton, you can buy, you know, so you, and they're all, they're lovely wines or a Verdelay or those kinds of ones or a Diamond. So there are wineries that are specializing in those varieties to some extent. And I think if they can become commercially more successful other wineries will say wow they're selling a lot of iona maybe i should grow that grape too so i think by finding people who make those wines and supporting them that will encourage others to say they're doing well maybe i should start thinking about growing those varieties too i think got it well great i love that thank you cool well thank you again very much so <laughs> absolutely thank Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And a big special thanks to all of the Patreon subscribers. There's been some new subscribers. I really appreciate you and I'm inspired and humbled by your support. It is wonderful and absolutely necessary to make this podcast possible. Also, please check out Catavino Tours if you are considering travel for wine to Europe. Catavino Tours features luxury travel tours in Portugal and Spain and they are very thoughtful about their ecological approach to travel, encouraging you actually to travel less and more thoughtfully. They're doing their best to reduce waste and purchase offsets to eliminate the carbon footprint of the travel that you might take with them. So please check them out at catavinotours.com OWP. That's catavinotours.com OWP.